welcome to episode 75 of Carol Pop. Our guest this week and next is one of the all-time great singer, songwriter, performers, Graham Parker. From his 1976 debut album with The Rumor, Howlin' Wind, through the all-time classic, Squeezing Out Sparks, through his commercial peaks in the 1980s and much excellent work since then, Parker has maintained one of the great rock and roll careers. There's been some R&B thrown in there for good measure as well. In part one of this two-parter, the British Parker guides us through his career from now to then and back again. His creativity and output have not slowed, and he has a new album almost ready for release. He'll also be touring the U.S. starting in late April and continuing throughout the summer. Much has changed over the years, yet much hasn't. He is, foremost, a singer-songwriter and always has been. Does he write songs with a band in mind, whether it's The Rumor or the players on his past couple of albums? How much do the songs evolve from demo to finished form? Does he tend to tell the band what to play? How did his recent reunion with The Rumor, his ace band on his first five studio albums, come about? How did their playing on the two newer albums he made with them, Three Chords Good and Mystery Glue, differ from their earlier work? Have they all mellowed? I took one step into the void One step further than I've ever been Into something I might want to avoid How did the reunited Grant Parker and the rumor wind up in the Judd Apatow film, This Is 40? Got a bit of a problem, a touch of gout. Gout? Yeah, my whole family, they all had gout. Jesus. That's very unfortunate. My Auntie Queenie. She had a foot like this. It's like a size of a small pig. I've got a photo of it. I'd love to see that photo of that gout foot. And a Great. couple of bunions as well. I've got to go to the podiatrist, and I hope he can shoot me up with something. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's get you to the podiatrist. Bye, Graham. See you later, Graham. Good luck with your gout. Rock and roll, baby. Is Parker done again with the rumor? Then we flash back on Parker's early years when he was growing up in an English town called, I kid you not, Deep Cut. He loved the Beatles, the Stones, and American R&B. Which Motown singer did he wind up modeling his delivery after? Later, he went through a hippie singer-songwriter phase in the mode of Jackson Brown and James Taylor. But by the time he began recording with the rumor, he was singing in his distinct angry voice and setting out to destroy the kind of music to which he'd been listening a few years earlier. How did that transition happen? Does he still sing with what he calls his nasty voice? What does he think when he listens to those early Graham Parker and the Rumor performances? His shows and the first Graham Parker and the Rumor albums, Howlin' Wind, Heat Treatment, and Stick to Me, featured the four-man horn section known as the Rumor Horns. The band started playing out in clubs, as many do, and were considered part of England's pub rock scene. Did Parker at any point think the music he was making was quote-unquote pub rock? He has some choice words about that term. He also discusses his bout with COVID and which album in his catalog that he considers a turning point. Graham Parker has one of Rock's great voices, whether singing or talking, and as always, there's an urgency to what he has to say. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Graham Parker. Were you just recording a new album? I started November 1st. And finished uh, sometime after Christmas in the new year. And uh, it's mixed and mastered. Um, so, yeah, that's in the bag. I don't know 
when it will be released yet. I suspect more like towards the fall than than the spring. Actually, who's your band on it? It's the uh, actually apart from the drummer, it's the same people who's on the last record, Cloud Symbols, which you right. may not have heard, but um, I did. You got you got Martin Belmont on there. You got the Rumor Horns back. Yeah, we had those. Uh, I've got some horn players on this as well. Not the rumor horns; they weren't available. So um, yeah, it's one of those one of those things. Now you have to sit and wait for a bit because of certain, uh, you know, things here and there. They they don't usually get records out as quick as they used to. The turnaround is a lot slower these days. Do you have to wait for it to get pressed up on vinyl and all that too, or are you? Well, our problem is here in our wisdom. We've left the greatest community of nations the world has ever known the European Union, and we got our uh, many of most of our CDs and vinyl printed just across the channel in nations like Poland and the Netherlands. I right. think my, mine were coming from there, my record company were getting. But now we have to pay tariffs, of course, because we're not part of that community. We're not in the single market. So um, now every <laughs> everyone's fighting for the very few CD factories here, and I think there's one vinyl so, uh, you know, we like to shoot ourselves in the foot now and again, and we've certainly done it with this. Yeah, really. When you're writing for a new album like this one that's coming up, are you writing with the band in mind, or do you sort of write the songs and think, oh, this is who should play on it? Uh, no, I definitely don't write with a, with any band in mind. I just write songs. But um, And uh, this is a t very different from cloud symbols i thought it was going to be cloud symbols part two i thought that would be an enjoyable thing to do because i had a few songs i thought that they would be perfect to uh, to fit in with cloud symbols so you know uh, continuing that kind of feel but it didn't work out that way because a lot of songs um quite a few jumped up that i'd written it was about three of them from at least 10 years ago um, and this occasionally happens and uh one of them just seemed like some kind of advanced futuristic song. It has a lot of parts to it. And then I found a way to arrange it. And it was quite a, a drastic. There was a, some, some rather, for me, drastic uh, arrangements. Uh, they're not quite typical. Um, mm. You'll recognize them as being me, but they're, they're not in quite the same format as they've they nearly always are. That's what was holding me back about these songs. I thought these are kind of big, fat, medium tempo songs. Um, I don't really want them to be. They're not my kind of thing now. They're, you know, two, two long verses, then you get to the bridge and then a solo. So I, I came up with something much more radical and much more punchy from one change to another. Uh, which, you know, instead of two verses in a row, just one, then stop, do a bridge, then do a solo. Completely different, which makes it move along much, much better. And I thought they were much longer uh, than they turned out to be. One I thought was very long turned out to be three minutes 16 or something, or 30. And it's it's like to to make a song that feels long and, and, and big and kind of grand in its scope, to get it down to that length. You know, and I've got one song that's, you know, two minutes, something or other. And uh, whenever I saw a song was under three minutes, I'd be going, yes, yes, which is uh, a discipline, you know, a sort of discipline to it, uh, as opposed to, you know, I get them finished and realize it's four minutes, 49. It's like, oh, come on, that'll bore the hell out of people. You know, it, it'll bore the hell out of me after about 10 lessons. 
there's things like that that I'm very pleased of. They're more technical things, I suppose, but um, at the same time, I guess it's artistic because it, uh, it, it's appealing to me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited. Are you figuring that stuff out in the studio with the musicians, or is that you kind of playing with it before you get there? Well, they get uh, demos based usually on a cell phone. This time I went to one of the musicians, or two of them actually, to their home studios and did the demos, maybe a little overdub. I like to go into a studio, because I'm the producer as well, I like to go into a studio uh, with the song 95% in place. And once this band hear it, they, they just learn it. They learn the outline of it. But once you start playing it, then the thinking starts. Then the, the realization is not a, a guy on an acoustic guitar anymore. It's a bunch of people. Very different thing. Um, so, you know, uh, I quickly have some suggestions. And, and then, or I just say to to people, uh, okay, bring it, okay, just, you just keep finding something. And then I say, that, okay, follow that. That's the thing, that's the feel of it. Because it's, um, sometimes it's hard to get to the gist of a song, where it's coming from, in many ways, until it's fleshed out quite a bit, you know, otherwise it's just a guy on an acoustic guitar. I, I really like to go, I'm very well prepared. I mean, I, I practice a lot, you know, I'll even, I even went to a rehearsal room before with my guitar to sing the songs over and over again through equipment, you know, to with a, a microphone to get that feeling instead of singing them quietly at home, you know. The preparation is important, but having the right musicians is important. I mean, we never did more than five takes of a song, and often it was the second one that made the cut. So that's how good these people are. How how detailed do you tend to be in your with these de demos and then your instructions to the musicians? Like, are, will you say, "All right, this is the guitar riff. This is what I want the bass to be doing," or is it more like, "Here's the here's the song and fill in the way you think you should"? Well, yeah. Sometimes the uh, bass riffs, for instance, are inherent in my bass note playing on the acoustic guitar. I'm I'm always doing bass patterns as I play, and they're so obvious to a good bass player. That there's no problem and maybe as we're playing there's a, a change in the song and I'll ask the bass player to maybe make this a bit more blue notes uh, you know whereas the others has been very major chords thing this could work in a sort of more bluesy note kind of thing and play something on my acoustic suggest it and off they go and we only record a, as with drums it's drums bass and uh, a, a electric guitar that's Martin Belmont again and I'm playing generally uh, on all songs but one, acoustic and live vocals. So it's a live performance right. in the studio. And that's been my route for many years since I called myself the producer, rashly, in 1988 and made the Mona Lisa Sister, which I said, this song will not be about drum sounds. This song, will, this record will not sound like the 80s where the drum sound was more important than the voice. This will be about the singer and the song, the acoustic guitar and the voice, and that's how we base this this record. And I've I've done more or less that since, uh, in you know, in some way or another. The vocals are usually a live thing with the acoustic. So um, that's why I need so much preparation up front because I haven't played them live on stage. And the first time recording them, you suddenly look, the red light goes on and it's like, holy moly, I better know what I'm doing. You know, the panic takes over and somehow it all comes out pretty good. 
you know. So he's sort of staring between the lyrics on the music stand and, and uh, you know, flicking your eyes over there and looking at musicians nodding through the booth to instruct them we're going to that part now, you know. Uh, it's a it's a very live interactive performance. Right. Um, that that's what that that's what I found works for my songs, and uh, you tend to learn what you're doing after a number of years. You know, when a little more than ten years ago, you did uh, three chords good uh, with the rumor, and then you did mystery glue a few years later. Was was that an instance where you thought, oh, it'd be good to get these guys together, and I'm going to write? I mean, did you did you have songs that you thought, oh, this would be really great for this particular band, or was it more just a sense of, hey, it would just be nice to play with these guys again? Well, no, not in the slightest. When uh, the songs for the first uh, reunion record, for instance, uh, Mystery Glue, uh, I'd just written them. And then I, I thought, well, you know, seeing as I record songs in a stripped-down fashion, as I say, the, 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 the Cloud Symbols record and this newer one, um, I brought the keyboard player in after, for instance, you know, once we got the basic tracks and then I, then I get a horn section and whatever else I'm going to do and do backing, some backing vocals. I've actually got a new album. I've got girl backing vocals. I haven't done that for a very long time and never did really much of it. So there's a real difference in the feel right there. But the mystery glue songs, you see, I, I basically just uh, got hold of Steve, the drummer and Andrew, the bass player and said, uh, it's been a while. Why don't why don't we? Um, I got some songs, and I think you know we could do this as a, a three piece, and then I'll do what I've been doing, which is I'll play all the electric. and And Steve Goulding literally made a joke. He said, "Well, why don't you get Martin, um, Andrew, uh, I mean Martin Brinsley and Bob, and have a proper band?" And I very foolishly did that. I, I emailed people, and it was only after I thought, this is going to cost me a lot of money. What the hell have I just done? An absurd idea. Why? And I listened to the songs and thought, what have these got to do with the rumor? Um, and then I realized, well, they got, they, they, they got everything to do with the rumor. There's no, no problem. They can play any of this stuff. And so there it was. I was stuck with it, and then I got a call from Judd Apatow. <laughs> and uh, there it was. Now, did Judd, did Judd call you because he knew you'd gotten the rumor back together and thought that? No, 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 he didn't. I, I met with him in New York. He, he, you know, I talked to him on the phone and I said, are you going to be anywhere in New York? New York? Uh, you know, anywhere, anytime, tell me, I'll meet you. So I drove down to the city there. I was based more in upstate then, than, um, you know, than, than in Britain. I'm still on both sides of the pond, really, foot in both sides. But I drove down there and sat with him in his hotel in, in, a, in a bar on our own, and uh, he's talking to me about the character in this film that maybe I could, uh, maybe I could do the character, and then I I dropped the bomb on him. I said, "Well, I'll tell you what, Chad. I just reformed the rumor. And we're going to do an album, and there's a guy making a documentary who's who thought he made the documentary, and then I did what I told him I would never do: reform the rumor. So there's going to be. So I said to him, "Why don't you put the rumor in your movie?" <laughs> he's, he's literally his head went back like that what and uh he said okay and um so the, the the a lot of the filming for the documentary was done by the documentarian michael gramalia and uh, uh a lot of it comes up on the blu-ray on the on the judd app on this is 40 blu-ray is pretty spectacular a lot of great stuff and a entire show of ours when we were filming for the for the uh, movie are on stage bits. We did about 12 songs over and over again for three days. And 
they picked out, you know, always it's going to be very small parts, but there's there was so much, you know, Judd actually put a whole disc, I think, or something. And there was a disc, actually, yeah. Uh, DVD. So there's there's a lot. There were so many aspects to what what happened after I accidentally reformed the rumor. There there were all these things. This just this can't be happening. You know this. I, I did not do it for this, but you know, it was a terrific bump for all of us. Terrific bounce. You know. Well, did you? I mean, I, I assume you enjoyed it because you went and did another album with them and you toured with them as well. Yeah, I, I knew that I would have to do another. I mean, it was just, you know, and we had to do some gigs. We had to. Of course, we started off with the premise of forget the gigs, we just do an album. But you know what it's going to turn into. It's going to turn into offers coming in that you can't refuse. And um, it had to turn into another album. And by the time we'd done that, we were, you know, we've done it. We've done our bit. Yeah, I was actually, when you did your Squeezing Out Sparks anniversary tour and you did that solo, I was wondering if you considered doing that with the rumor as well or whether you just sort of felt like I've done my rumor thing. Uh, no, I've done the rumor thing, I think. Yeah, I think I think we've done it. I think you should uh, quit while you're just in the right position, you know, and we were. It was satisfying. It's enough. It's a tremendous undertaking with bands. Um, it's basically a break-even, if you're lucky, situation. And uh, we were doing, you know, nice the, the kind of halls we left the, our, our period before in. We were doing the, you know, the theater type stuff and, you know, some really great, perfect places for us. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was definitely, you know, enough. I, I, I don't see it happening again. Um, we're not getting any younger as well. Uh, when, you, when you all got back together, was it? Was it sort of like you'd gone in a time machine and all of a sudden you like remembered all of the little idiosyncrasies you had when you were in your, you know, 20s and 30s? Or or was it more like, you know, we're, we're these older, wiser people and our dynamic has changed? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, we play differently now. We're not, um, you know, we played it, when we when some of the band members, for instance, listened back to us on stage, live versions of, of the songs that we were you know, we were going to do plenty of old ones. Of course we were. Uh, we all said the same thing. I mean, these are train wreck speed. They were train wreck speed. We got faster and faster every year, um, which tends to make everything sound like it's a bit of a straight line instead of having depth to it. And um, we have had no intention, any of us, of trying to play New York Shuffle the same speed we did back in the day. But we kind of got close, actually. You know, the excitement of being on stage is definitely going to sort of double the speed pretty quick. But a lot of the time we really held back like a song like Lady Doctor from the first album. That's a jazz swing song. You know, it shouldn't be the kind of breakneck speed we we were starting to do it in, you know, by the time we got to 78, 79, we'd stopped doing that. And we were, we were all about sort of rock fast, you know, there was a lot of that, but this was, um, this was just natural where I want to be with songs now. And they wanted to be the same place, which is a much more musical adventure than a slap you in the head adventure. You know, we did that. We were young. Yeah. It seems like there's sort of a full circle effect a little bit with your music and that, you know, you listen to Howlin' Wind and obviously you hear those R&B influences and those kind of shuffling rhythms and everything. And then, yeah, everything sort of got 
straightened out more aggressive for a while. But when you go back to cloud symbols, you know, you're hearing those, you know, shuffling rhythms and the R&B kind of stuff again. And it seems like that's your pocket, you know, that's your comfort area or, or not comfort, but it's something that you're really good at and like going back to. It is. It's 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 sudden. It suddenly sort of uh, appeared again naturally, as well. I mean, um, it, I can feel that that's that early the swing kind of thing of white honey and um, as you say the shuffle and that that kind of groove push pull groove, um, very rock and roll swing instead of rock, shall we say? Right. It, it's not sort of an big anthemic rock songs, uh, which. You know, we moved into those areas pretty well, and um, but at the same time, I had the the basics of, of soul and and R and B and and that. So so we combined the two pretty good, but um, much more now the the swing and with almost the jazz influenced that was in Lady Doctor. Going right back to that is in some of the songs on cloud symbols and it's in some of the new ones it's in a few, couple of cities so it's yeah it's it's kind of um i, I think it's my kind of groove and it work, you know for solo performance those kind of grooves work very well for me you you know playing local girls solo is just like having a dead weight around my shoulders it's a you know it's a four four rock groove you know, um, so it's there, there's a lot. There's some songs that aren't really good for solo. So you know, you have to you adjust, and um, you're definitely right. That's that's the kind of feel that we were we sort of were good at. That me and the rumor, and I'm good at you know post rumor. a bigger influence on you the, the beatles or like american r&b it's hard it's hard to trace i mean the, the beatles and the stones were of course why all of us at age 12 picked up musical instruments because they weren't like somebody from alabama or you know they were like guys you know lived up the street really just up in london mick jagger and keith richards and bill wyman and the beatles were up in liverpool they were sort of reachable distances. They were older than me, of course, when I first heard them, when they first hit the charts. But they didn't seem that older. Like They were like your older cousin. So it didn't seem impossible. And um, it didn't take long. I mean, the first Stones album, it's like a, you know, a book of knowledge on where it all came from. There's Chuck Berry songs on there. You know, there's I'm a King Bee, Birds and Around You. There's these blues songs. I sort of heard a bit of this because, for one thing, before I, I think before um, the Beatles came along, um, my mother worked for um, a, part time every now and again, not often for some for a thing just around the corner where I grew up. There's a lot of army there, huge army base all around the whole. All the land was owned by the army, apart from my little village in the middle of it all. And she worked for the officers' mess, which is where officers used to go. And they would have tea and they would have dinner and stuff and they'd have parties and my mum would go and serve them tea and, and this kind of thing. And when there was a night party on, she'd go and serve. And um, some one or two of them asked her about, oh, my son, you got a son? Yeah, what does he like? And she said, oh, he likes music and collecting matchboxes. So these these guys, they were always stationed in exotic places, Japan and, and stuff like that. So they'd collect these matchbooks and bring them back. They'd give them to my mum. They've got these massive boxes of them. 
I got some in my attic here in London and some in my attic in in in, in America. Uh, I always found it supremely fascinating. So they they give them that, and also they'd give her records because they they'd always say, "Well, I can't travel to. I'm off to somewhere, Singapore tomorrow, or Germany. I, I can't carry them with me." And, and I had a stack of little Richard singles, like that come off of jukeboxes with those little plastic bits that you stick in. So I had little Richard, and then the Beatles come along, and uh, what, what's Paul McCartney singing? You know. They're singing Little Richard, like Good Golly Miss Molly. And so, I don't know, they're doing those kind of covers. And, um, you know, other things like Chuck Berry, uh, you'd hear that because they did those songs, the Stones and the Beatles, didn't they? Roll over Beethoven, the Beatles. Oh, Carol, the Stones, tremendous number on the first album. And uh, then you'd hear, uh, what's that, the radio, uh, you know, pirate radio. And that's where you'd hear Chuck Berry. And it's like, oh, there's all these full circles going on. And you realize it's all from American black people, the whole lot of it, pretty much. Of course, the, the advanced writing of the Beatles was like, that's from another planet. They could write anything in any style. Look, look at what they did. You know, the Stones at first, at least, were a white British R&B band and they were doing covers and then they wrote. Then they wrote songs which were still very based in American styles. But, of course, next thing you know, there's a sitar on a song. You know, there's all that influence comes into it. But um, the, the Stones, are, are, I suppose, more than anyone, were truer to their roots in the long run um, in, in so many ways. So did you start writing songs trying to sound like the Stones then or like what was your first what was your first impulse to say okay I'm going to I'm going to give this a shot Well when I know me and when I was 13 me and uh, some guys got together and had what I call a dress up band in other words we dressed like the Beatles you know this was sort of instant 12 years old heard the Beatles see the haircuts grow your hair like that get some cuban heels That was was that the uh, deep cut trio Yeah the deep cut 3 um, and then we added a member and we were called the Black Rockers and we couldn't play, you know, it was just like bluffing, making a racket. So you grew up in a town called Deep Cut. Yeah, one word that is. That's a village, tiny village. But, then, but like for someone who's like put out so many albums and great albums with so many great deep cuts on them, that's sort of a it, it's it's kind of a fate thing, right? Like if you grew up in, you know, you, you had to grow up in Deep Cut to have your career. I guess so. <laughs> Maybe. Um, it was, you know, I didn't choose it. I was born in London, but only for the, uh, here for four years. Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, so I wrote a song at the age 12 or 13 called Won't You Come Back, which was totally Beatles, totally Beatles. And, um, you know, I had older friends, though. They knew about folk music. They knew about blues. I had a Muddy Waters Record. They were about like a year and a bit older than me, which seemed so knowledgeable and distant to me, of course, as a kid. But they had this cool music, and they were all going to go to art school. You know, they went to art school as soon as they left school. There was a huge amount of folk influence, blues influence. They knew all this stuff, so I got an education from them as much as anything as well. So and you had an album called the Middlesex demos that came out last year, and there was these old, you know, demos you were doing in the early '70s. They had more of this sort of acoustic folk kind of thing. Is that where you were going for that now? And and sort of how did that sort of change from that to what you wound up recording? 
Well, if you listen to that, there's, there are some musicians on there that the, the guy who recorded me got some musicians and, you know, didn't charge me anything. He paid them because uh, it was a small publishing company. And uh, it was before my career started, yes, but I, I was desperate. I didn't know how to break into it at all. And I saw an ad in the music paper. Songwriters wanted a publishing company. So I called up and they said, well, you know, yeah, we'd like to hear something. No biggie. So I, I might have made a tape with a borrowed Revox at the time, or I think I might have gone up to the, to London and sat down with them and played some songs. And they liked them a lot, and they signed me to this little deal. And then uh, one of them had a studio in his backyard and said, yeah, let's record, you know, everything you've got. And um, uh, it wasn't really everything, because I, I had hundreds of things, songs, but most of them were based in my periods of, you know, flying the freak flag, really. You know, I had hair down to my, my hips, you know, and and I was full on, you know, hippie, as, as it was called in America more. We call ourselves heads or freaks here. We didn't like the word hippie. Um, but so I was definitely into, you know, listening to the Incredible String Band, which were, they were acoustic. So there's one thing, um, you know, so I... I'd, uh, that, that was good, and yeah, but there's Pink Floyd on the other hand, and uh, Electric Ladyland, album, you know, the Beatles albums when they went psychedelic a bit, when they were influenced by all that, and um, it was the Santana album with, you know, Abraxas, and oh, Captain Beefheart got into the mix at the esoteric, crazy end of things. The, I, I've got Court of the Crimson King on my iPlayer now. To this day, I listen to it now and again. So there was that. So I was writing songs like that. But there was also James Taylor. And it was like that was much more the easy way to go, to be like James Taylor or, you know, then Jackson Brown, who I loved a great deal. I loved the singer-songwriters. I consider myself a singer-songwriter first before anything anyway. Um, and so I was learning to fingerpick and write some of those songs you know, this is in the 67 and 68 period when I was left home and various different places. I, yeah, yeah, so it's so there are a lot of songs that I had to leave behind, hundreds and hundreds, you know. Um, there are a few that crept through on some early things, but um, the songs on the Middlesex tapes there, they, they are, um, there's some that, sh that sort of show the two sides of me. One, that singer-songwriter, Gentle Voice, really. There's a song on there. Telegraph Wires or something like that it's called, or, or I Want to Stay Here Loving You, that's it. There's a song like that, very pretty and very, very singer-songwriter, picking a guitar. And there's songs like Time Bomb Blues, where my voice goes into uh, something closer to what would be happening when I finally hit my stride and, and, and the real, the best songs started coming out. I mean, I'd, by 73, I think, by the time I'd finished with that, music publisher situation and knew I had to get something better because that they didn't really understand what I was doing. They weren't really, really hip. Let's put it that way. Those two guys. And, uh, you know, and then, then I found these musicians in, 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 the, in, uh, in London and be, I'd be driving up from the suburbs to London and playing, practicing with these, this Noel Brown guy who ended up playing Dobro on, on the, um, Howling Wind album. And, um, you know, they led me towards this guy, Dave Robinson. So there, there's the story there. And he led me towards the rumor. But that, that I had ex a bit of experience there in the studio on those middle sexed demos because, you know, there was a microphone suddenly in front of me. I'd had no experience before. 
I've never been on. I've never been on a real stage, really, in any shape or form, until the rumor. And I didn't. But there, I'd at least been in the studio and realized, okay, microphone, you've got to have your voice somewhere near it. It's you're restricted all of a sudden, and your guitar's there, and the microphone's there, and so I got a bit of a hang of it then. It was good. It was good practice for the real thing, right? Well, as you developed your vocal approach, because you ended up obviously with a very distinct voice, was that being driven by the kind of songs you were writing, or were you sort of singing in this way and thought, "Oh, this is the this is the way the song should sound to fit this approach that I'm taking." Well, I, I've said it before. I mean, typical of youth fashion, I wanted to destroy prog rock that I'd been listening to a couple of years before. And and uh, I thought the only way to do that was to be intensely angry, the absolute opposite of peace and love. And somehow my songs got a bit more and more aggressive and tough. And uh, my voice, I had no practice with them in, in, on a stage. You know, I... I didn't know how to sing, so I just screamed, really. It was all throat action. Uh, you know, I didn't really know about the singing from the body or any of that. Um, but somehow, it's, you know, listening back, it's like, it's it's hard for me to listen. It's uh, too abrasive. It's not uh, it's not pleasant for me. At the same time, I'm hearing my voice well. I was better than I thought. At least I give myself that credit. I'm, I'm still better than I thought. I'm actually going up to a falsetto and wavering the note a little bit. There's something, there's, there's sort of, um, you know, something in there that's got potential. But that's all I, I see now in my singing in the early days, potential. It's just too, too nasty. It's off-putting, really. So is it hard for you to listen to those early albums of yours? Oh, yeah, it's unpleasant, yeah. Um, but the music is it's really tremendous. What was, the, what was the first uh, record of yours where you listened to it and you think, oh, this is how I should be singing? Before I, I started to knuckle down and start really trying to write and learn to play better, which wasn't until, you know, the age of 18, really. I'd, I'd kind of ignored it and did regular jobs. You know, I think I was a bit intimidated by the idea of learning to play properly and really trying to make a go of this. I, I had no idea whether I was good enough or not, so I didn't really bother much. But um, I think by the time um, I was getting there with Squeezing Out Sparks, I think, there was there was semblance of, a, of an actual singing voice. But it was really Mona Lisa's sister because of the fact that I said, this is guitar, it's about the guitar, acoustic guitar and the singer and the songs, not about the drum sounds, you know, not about that, and it's going to be as little instruments as possible. I'd had it with that 80s thing already, and it was still the 80s. You know, it was at 87 when I was writing those songs and probably recording the record. And um, that's that's when it came out a bit, a lot better. I found a lot more elements in my voice, which I had sort of crushed for many years. And um, so it became more satisfying for me because it widened my scope of in every in every single way. Uh, songwriting wise so I can sing a song that I've written the way I feel it should be sung instead of bluffing it you know and forcing it upon the listener they don't all have to smash people over the head right right? they don't have to do that Um, even so I'll listen back to something from the 90s or 2000s and think oh god too fast 
too fast, man. <laughs> or oh, I'm still, oh, I've still got that nasty tone. I can't help. You know, there's this nasty tone is still there to a certain extent. You know, at first I'm recording it. I think that is where I want to be. But sometimes I listen. You know, later on you listen to the mixes and think, eh, I still sound a bit nasty. God damn it. <laughs> you can't win. Nasty's okay sometimes. Yeah, oh, sure as hell is, yeah. So it's, you know, I have to lighten up a bit and accept, you know, I, I, it's not bad to have that little bit of grit in there. It's just it's just balanced now with an actual voice. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with that to, to as much as I can be. When, when you were getting ready to, you know, launch your recording career, did you like the idea of hooking up with a band that was always already formed like the rumor or did you want to sort of assemble your own band or be part of a band or did you want sort of the flexibility of I'm a singer songwriter and you know a lot of these singer songwriters work with different musicians every time and I'm just going to do what I want to do well I, you know once the once the rumor were in place I didn't know any other musicians apart from a few that I'd been playing with before who led me towards Dave Robinson and the rumor Noel Brown and um, uh, this guy up uh, Paul Riley, who was in a, a band that actually, you know, were professional and made a record and stuff. Um, the, those guys, and then then there was the rumor. So I was, you know, sort they, they, obviously they could cover all the bases. They could cover all the bases. But by the time I got to four albums, squeezing out sparks, I mean, I think that it was it was like, you know, I, I suddenly realised I might have a career here. You know, this might actually be what I do. I, I, I might not just, the song writing might not wear off, which mm. is something you don't know. I don't you know. You would, maybe. Yeah, yeah, sure, I didn't know. I mean, when I, you know, we all started off with the idea that this pop music was meant to be ephemeral. You know, it's meant to be sort of there and gone, the will of the wisp, you know. And so the Stones and the Beatles thought the same thing. You know, they thought, oh, this will be good for a year. Right. And then, we'll, you know, we we'll go back to the, the jobs, the, you know, the, be back to being a plumber or Mick Jagger joined the London School of Economics or whatever. They thought that way because it was meant to be that way. You weren't meant to. They, they Somehow there was a bit of brain fog there about the fact that the people that they loved were like in their, some of them are 60s, 70s, you know, these old black, the black guys from that they got so much influence from, were still playing. You know, it didn't occur to people that we would still be playing, you know, those, you know, those kind of guys. And the same for me. I didn't really, it didn't occur to me. It was like, wow, all I cared about was getting a record deal, a record deal with a real label. Imagine it. And, and, a, and a good band behind it who understands what you're doing. That's all I looked at it as. I just thought that would be it. Maybe I'd make an album and then I could, go, you know, do what you do, live in the suburbs, work in the supermarket, and and I could at least in the in the pub, somebody would say, Graham, you made a record, didn't you, once? Cool. Fantastic. That must have been amazing. And that, you know, it would be like that. It would be like you talk about this one record. Right. You know, I didn't, you didn't know. And then it was like suddenly I've come to four records and squeezing out sparks. It's none too shabby, you know. And then the up escalator, yeah, none too sure. So by that time, though, I was thinking, this is this is too. I'm restricting myself by staying with the same musicians. I'm restricting myself. I have to explore, and uh, you know, touring is 
It's brutality on a stick. We were doing touring for practically a year. I, I took a break in 1980 or did two shows. One was the final show with the rumor, and that was it. I didn't do any more gigs because I thought, I do this every year. I'm like this, I'm the horse that they throw out onto the, onto the track, you know, endlessly. And uh, so I stopped, and um, good thing, very good thing to do. And um, then, then start retooled again and started, and off I was in, into another gray area, basically letting Jack Douglas, the producer, uh, bring in the musicians, apart from Nicky Hopkins, who I'd worked with on the Up Escalator. So right. he, was, he was a natural to bring back in. And I think um, he was far more suited for um, the um, Another Gray Area album than the Up Escalator album. It really clicked with me and him then. And we, we became very good friends. It was, you know, sad when he died too young, but yeah. he, was, he was a real friend. We used to hang out a lot. Yeah, and you and you he'd get all that Stones pedigree too, you know, you could, and everything else. Yeah, everything. I mean, hit record after hit record. Sure, the documentary is being made and probably hopefully finished uh, about Nicky, and that was uh, basically my idea because the guy who, who was a fan and trying to get sort of people, you know, I contributed to a bench in Nicky Nicky Hopkins where he grew up in London. Perryvale Park, a bench, a beautiful bench that has my name on it and Yoko Ono's and all these people who contributed some money for this beautiful bench. And um, I said to the guy, you've got to make a documentary. It's a no-brainer. Look at the people you will get in this documentary. Right. No, it's a no-brainer, man. And um, so that's what he did. And it's it's been it, – he's got loads of amazing people in, and that's uh, – I would have gone to a screening, but my record, uh, I was just about to start this record in November. And believe it or not, three of the musicians got COVID. And the drummer had it, got it in September and was still ill in November. And I had to quickly, in the last week, scramble for a drummer. Yeah. Uh, Martin, my guitarist, got it 10 days before. And I thought, he's never going to clear up. And he did. Eight, two days before the album, he was all right. The bass player got it when he was out doing a theater gig. So I thought I was going to hold a, you know, have to redo, you know, redo the dates and uh, go through all this again. So, so there was all that going on. But uh, anyway, it, was, it all worked out well. Every, you know. Yeah, I'd like to see that Nicky Hopkins documentary. That's uh, yeah, I would. I wouldn't. I didn't go to the screening because three of the band members get COVID. One of them on a respirator and in hospital various times. Months later, is still not capable of doing playing on a record. So I thought, I, I'm not going to a, a small gathering of people in a small place and be the one who gets COVID like two days before I go into the studio. So, so I haven't seen the screening of it, but um, uh, they're, they're on the track. You know, it's, it's, it's in the works. Have you gotten COVID? No, I, uh, no. I may have done in March... This, this date, I'll remember March 2020. I may have done. I, I went through a full range of symptoms one day. One day. And then, you know, including loss of taste. Not bad, but I could feel it. I had a, a fever. I had a light fever. And I was uh, trying to walk down the road for a, go for a two-mile walk because you could walk anywhere in London to get moving. Beautiful weather. So I got down the road and felt totally exhausted. I knew something was up. Came back... By evening, I, I got my taste back. Wow! And there, and then, 
The next day, I felt a bit fuzzy, but that was it. So I may have got it. Now, that's before vaccines, and I couldn't find a mask for love or money. And I was going into shops around here, sort of putting my hand in my face, you know. So it's it's not surprising, but I may have got – I read it. If you get a very small dose of the inoculum, I think it's called, you might get some – what do you call it? You know, protection. And that's may what have happened with mm. me. I, I don't know. I'll never know. I'll never know, but it was certainly very suspicious. And so if I dodged a bullet, I got lucky. Uh, you know, and then the vaccines came and uh, uh, much more much more protection from it, you know. Well, I ain't want to criticize But let me tell you what I found I sense it took away the record machine Why come it down, come around when you started with the rumor, was there ever a point where you thought, oh, we're playing pub rock? Um, no, when I saw those words popping up in reviews of me, I thought, what, what are they talking about? I, you know, I didn't, none, nobody knew what pub rock, pub rock, nobody knew what that was. Nobody, nobody, nobody I knew, nobody mentioned it until I came to London to to meet this guy, Noel Brown, after the advert in the Melody Maker and met him and, uh, and this uh, and Paul Riley, who was in a band called Chili Willy, who apparently played in bands that played in pubs. And the, then I've got these musicians around me, and I've been given one of their albums, I think, uh, you know, a, a Brinsley Schwartz album. I thought, wow, well, they're playing a lot of lame country crap here. What is this? I don't know what it is. It's pretty lame. And uh, and it was like, why is this 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 moniker that doesn't exist you know, being applied to me. And it's guilt by association. It's 100% guilt by association. Um, but for some reason, I became the poster boy of something that doesn't exist and that I had nothing to do with and did not know existed. That's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it, right there? Yeah. Talk about ruining any chance of people seeing what I am clearly right there with pub rock. That'll do it. It's 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 not a good thing. It's a stupid thing for one thing. You know, I mean, I don't think that Levi Stubbs and, and blues artists and R&B are considered pub rock. Right. And where did I get it from? You know, my favorite singers, Otis Redding, Levi Stubbs. If you listen to Levi Stubbs, that might account for my aggressive approach in singing. Obviously, he's a great singer and I'm not, <laughs> but was. But if you listen to him singing Bernadette, he's singing a love song about, you know, the girls left him. It sounds like he wants to kill somebody. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, those are my singers. I don't think it's called pub rock, that. Is it, is it Mark? Can you tell me? No, it's definitely not. That's definitely not called pub rock. No, the Rolling Stones played in pubs. That's where you start. The Cavern Club was, you know, the Beatles, so. It was a pub, yeah, basically. You know, it's a back room in a pub. Stones played in the Wooden Bridge in Guildford, near, very near where I grew up. It's a pub. There's a, there's a back room, and you can go there and drink and when the bands are, either bands are on or not. And then the Stones would be on the stage. I never saw them. Missed that. I was a bit too young. But so, you know, it's, it's, it's whatever it is. But it doesn't matter what I say. People will always say, of course, you were around with the pub rock scene. No, I fucking wasn't. You know, it's like, <laughs> God damn it. it just keeps, Even in a book that was written, you know, there was some talk about some of the London musicians who were at this show by a group called Eggs Over Easy, you know, who the rumor saw and said, we should play like that play like that variety of songs and play in pubs. Forget trying to make it, let's play in pubs. 
and and it was like no I wasn't I I told the guy I had nothing to do with pub rock I didn't know about the origins these other bands that Brimsley Schwartz and the people saw and thought were good I, I told him that and it still ended up in the book Parker was one of the people at those games no I wasn't <laughs> accuracy it's not a bad thing to get some accuracy into this. <laughs> Well, Brinsley, as I recall, said that, you know, because they were playing in pubs and there weren't a lot of shows in pubs, that they became sort of the poster boys. Brinsley Schwartz, the band, became sort of the poster boys for pub yeah. rock. What were they playing? They were playing this kind of kind of country stuff, but then became a little more sort of R&B flavored. And so that sound became associated with pub rock. But really, playing in a pub, you can play, you know, balls out rock and roll. You can play whatever you're going to play. It's a pub. Like, it doesn't really... It doesn't really connote the style of music you're playing. And, you know, Van Morrison was doing songs like that. Nobody said, oh, Van Morrison's in his pub rock phase. Yeah, if you want to say a, a big musical influence as well, Van Morrison, you know, was a, a, a very big influence on my singing. Although I was this horribly aggressive, you know, wanted to kill people, sort of sound, beat everyone up, beat up the world sound in my voice. He was a very big influence. And of course, we know what his influences were, a wide variety of swing, jazz, blues, soul. Right. You know, so I'm just I'm just sort of following through on that, really. No question about it. So, you know, there's there's influence right there. Not not something called pub rock, of course. That's all for episode 75 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Grant Parker for being so open and gracious in looking back on his inspired and inspiring years in music. Go to his official website, grahamparker.net, to order merch and exclusive editions of some of his albums and to see his upcoming solo tour itinerary. It includes shows at Freight and Salvage in Berkeley, California on May 13th, New York's City Winery on May 31st, and Chicago's Old Town School of Folk Music on July 14th. You also can follow him on Twitter at It's Graham Parker, no apostrophe. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, with steady nerves and hits the spot every time. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you can hear about upcoming episodes and events. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for part two of our conversation with the great British musician, Graham Parker. Thanks.